The marketing funnel is under attack, especially in the B2B lead generation space. We like funnels because they provide us with some sense of progress in our marketing efforts. We advertise programs to get people's attention. We use copy to build interest. We use testimonials and case studies to build desire. And we have calls to action everywhere. This is the classic AIDA funnel, attention, interest, desire, and action. It's a direct marketing approach that falls down in the long sales cycle reality of B2B marketing. The demise of the funnel has been discussed for some time now. However, the discussion of what comes next has been very unsatisfying to me. The solutions that purport to step into the funnel's place come with their own baggage. HubSpot offers up the flywheel and customer delight. Lead scoring attempts to add value to the interactions someone has with us. The more interactions, the more likely they are to be a prospect, right? But this approach treats the funnel more like a swarm of flies. People seem to swarm around our content until finally, unpredictably, they qualify for a call. Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to predict the success of their marketing campaigns. Marketing magic is real, and I'll teach you how to harness it. The old Churchill quote uh, that we uh, we shape our buildings, and thereafter they shape us. Uh, you know that the frameworks that we use to think about our work really shape the work that we create. Carmen Perry believes there's something better than a funnel or a swarm, and his agency delivers that something better. His company, Kula Partners, focuses on manufacturers, all of whom have this long cycle B2B sales challenge. Carmen is the co-founder, and he's happy to put another nail in the coffin of the funnel. So my question is, what comes next? Our conversation around this question was interesting and enlightening. If digital marketing is more like a swarm, then how is a swarm of bees different from a swarm of flies? Let's find out. I always like to start off with understanding a little bit about how you got to where you are. So Carmen, you can go back as far as you want. You can go to high school, you can go to college. How did you end up in this role? I always find it interesting when I'm asked that question, Brian, because it's one of those like... It, it does beg the question, how far back do you go to, to find the defining point that kind of screwed you up, you know, um, get you on this path? But I, I would say uh, say this. So I, I worked in an agency role, uh, left um, kind of client-side marketing roles that I had early on in my career, uh, and eventually came client or, or agency side, um, was a uh, Vice President of Social Media for one of Canada's earliest social media agencies way back in those times. And then just uh, continued to, uh, um, I guess, uh, evolve in my agency career to owning one and uh, eventually uh, narrowing a focus to manufacturers. But I will say before all of that, kind of a weird aside, I was involved in politics. I ran uh, to be a member of the Legislative Assembly when I was 23 and 
spent like a year or so um, just knocking on doors, doing door-to-door campaigning. And that was after a brief stint as being a chief of staff to a member of parliament uh, here in Canada. So I found that I, I really think that was such a formative thing for me because really when else do you have the opportunity to just spend all day every day trying to sell only one thing and that's yourself. Like you're not trying to sell anything that you can't sell on price. Um, and it's just like this kind of, I think this uh, uh, sales intensive, if you will, that I underwent very early on in my career. And uh, I think that that's informed a lot of my approach since. Very interesting. Just quickly, what was it that made you decide to run for office? I don't know. I, look, I think I, I was around uh, a lot of my friends through university and whatnot were pretty politically engaged and active at the time. So I was just kind of in that space. I became active in a, a party here in Canada. Yeah, the opportunity presented itself in my local riding and I took it. Um, I don't know why. That's a great question. I was probably very misguided. <laughs> So I want to drill down on this this uh, dichotomy in your past, and I'm always looking for dichotomy. So you were client side, you went to agency side. Looking back, what mistakes did you make as a client side person in working with agencies? I guess I should ask, did you work with agencies when you were client side? I did. I ended up getting hired by one of them. Yeah. So what 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 did you do wrong? What do you think marketing people are doing wrong uh, when they are interacting with managing their agencies? I, I think that what mostly people do wrong in managing their agencies is that they uh, typically, I think they, they hire uh, professionals and then they don't take counsel. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, over my agency career, if I listen to agency people gripe, I think that's probably underneath of what you hear the most. Well, your agency currently focuses on manufacturing companies, manufacturing-oriented businesses. Give, give me some examples of the, the kind of manufacturers that you work with. Yeah, so we principally um, uh, work with uh, kind of mid-sized, more industrial B2B manufacturers. So, uh, for instance, um, uh, we have clients in the uh, that uh, manufacture uh, uh, fire suppression so- systems for buildings, like fire sprinklers and things of that sort. We have clients who manufacture uh, uh, motion sensors and other sensors that just go into a variety of uh, other uh, manufactured products or whatnot through to um, uh, flexible packaging manufacturers, et cetera. So it's kind of a pretty broad range. Uh, what's typically uh, common amongst them is that there's a uh, more complex B2B uh, sales environment unfolding. Considered purchase, long sales cycle, multiple people involved in the decision. We've, t- we've talked about it many a time. And yeah, that is a well-tilled soil. Yeah, and we tend to lump, you know, those sorts of sales into the lead generation bucket. So, certain percentage of our book is lead generation, and it generally falls into uh, those sorts of uh, those sorts of things. And the thing that um, everyone is focused on in lead generation is the proverbial funnel. Now, you aren't a fan of the funnel. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. And I know that some people, like, I'm not the first one to think that this funnel might be a little screwy. So let's just kind of try to distinguish that how I'm kind of viewing it maybe between or, or what I don't like about it versus some other folks at a very high level. I think and many other folks have kind of, um, their disagreement with the funnel has kind of been around the notion of maybe things don't look quite that linear or uh, the notion that there's a customer delight kind of a process and, and kind of a a resale, if you will, that needs to happen. So say more about that. What do you mean by a resale? 
Well, the, the idea that once you sell a customer, once you need to, you know, you need to keep them engaged, you need to keep them happy, and they eventually need to buy more stuff from you, so they kind of become a new prospect again or a new customer again in some way, okay. right? Okay. As they uh, buy a new solution from you or what have you. So this notion of you need to delight them and then bring them back through the funnel kind of began to challenge whether or not this funnel even made sense as a model. I'm fascinated by it because I think how we frame. Well, the, the old Churchill quote that we uh, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us, uh, you know, the, the frameworks that we use to think about our work really shape the work that we create. I think the, what I've found in my work, Brian, is that the funnel is leading a lot of uh, marketers that function within a, a complex B2B sales environment, it's leading them down a lot of really wrong paths and it's making them uh, think about attracting people into the universe in the wrong way. It, it makes them think about how to deal with people once they get into the universe in the wrong way. And it makes them think about how sales ought to engage with those people, I think, in a fundamentally flawed way. So I think there's all kinds of problems with it, which I inevitably I'm supposing we will probably dive into. And do you draw a distinction between what we typically set up as marketing funnels and the customer journeys that we try to understand, uh, especially in our digital marketing worlds? Yeah, I'm trying to uh, more, more around the, the, the customer journey, this notion of, okay, we're going to bring people in at the top of funnel and we're going to do a bunch of marketing tactics that help bring people into our world. Uh, and then we're going to qualify them. Uh, typically, the playbook is BANT qualification. Um, it is, uh, you know, well, do they fit our target client profile in any way, shape, or form? Yes, they're an MQL then. Uh, and then if they meet BANT, well, then they become an SQL. We engage the sales team and we're off to the races. And just so we're all on this on the same page, BANT is budget authority, need, and timeline. And MQL is a marketing qualified lead. Yeah, and FQL is a sales qualified lead. So that would be the kind of the standard, in some ways, playbook that I think in some ways has been kind of advanced uh, more aggressively by the inbound marketing crowd, which is often kind of in parallel or in some ways fueled by the SaaS marketing crowd, which doesn't really connect with um, the B2B buying process. Number one, at that top of funnel, there's this kind of myth of the unlimited top of funnel. Like if you buy more traffic, if you do more paid social campaigns, you do something to impact your organic search, you can just always add more, uh, you know, a greater number of buyers to the top of funnel and it's in some way unlimited. I think that's one of the first kind of real flaws of the thinking is it leads us down this road of, of measuring these very broad kind of vanity metrics that are all associated with nameless, faceless visitors into our digital presence that aren't actually people that we can sell to. So when people say, okay, well, what's a now what to that? The first thing I say is, well, for most of my customers, there's a very limited number of people that they can sell to. Maybe there's 2,000 companies in the world that could buy their stuff. Maybe there's 10 or 30,000 companies even. But that speaks to taking a more account-based approach to how you surround those target accounts and try to bring them into your universe, number one, rather than thinking about just you know paid and organic search tactics or what have you. Uh, and, and then be, beyond that, it, it changes. It ought to change how we measure the effectiveness of our digital presence because if we're building it to attract this target account base, then we ought to be measuring its effectiveness just simply based upon how many of those people in those target accounts have we been able to convert and bring into our universe to actually get into a point where we can begin to enable their buying journey in a more meaningful way. 
Yeah. How many people on our list of targeted accounts are, are we actually drawing? Now, I want to kind of make sure we've kind of covered this landscape of funnel and funnel alternatives before we dive into some more of those solutions and kind of specifically um, what those metrics look like. I think for a lot of folks, what they're really dealing with is what's more of a swarm. So you are using organic search, you're using paid search, you're using paid social on Facebook or on LinkedIn, and you're bringing everyone in and you're kind of letting your your offers, your lead magnets, the offers on the page that generate those those initial leads do whatever they're going to work, kind of uh, filter through those things. Um, and then those people go away and, and you use email to try to get them back. And so they're swarming in at almost any level of the funnel and you're trying to make heads or tails of that. Uh, that's the downside of, of not having a funnel. And then the other model is, uh, you know, I think we borrow too much from the direct response world. So in, in the days of uh, email or direct mail, direct response, we really had the scope of a letter and a few mailings to get people through the decision-making process. For short sales cycle products, we can create these funnels that are draw attractive uh, people, get them to make the first conversion. They had to look through lead magnets, uh, get them to trip over tripwire where they spend a few bucks and then essentially begin to upsell them into the, the full package. These things aren't uh, aren't working for your clients is, is what I'm hearing. Well, it just doesn't connect with the reality of, uh, you know, eight, nine, 10 person buying committee making a multi-million dollar multi-year decision on who their, for instance, their packaging manufacturing partner is going to be for the next five years. And it's just not how that process unfolds. And, but I think your swarm is an interesting insight. And I'm gonna, I'll take the, look, this could completely disintegrate into flames, Brian, but I can tell you're up for the try. <laughs> Always. And I, well, I, when you said swarm, it just got me thinking, because I've, I've been trying to put a visual model to this and that's trying to be helpful in some way without abstracting it or trying to be too cute by half. So we, I don't know if this will succeed or not. Let's try it. I have been trying to think of it more like a kind of, is it, is it more like almost like a beehive in some way? Because that swarm, that messiness, I think, is quite accurate of what you're trying to capture. And there's people that are outside the environment. Like if there's bees swarming around the hive, we, they're not in yet. Uh, we may not know who they are, but they're certainly within our environment. They're within our periphery, and we're doing things to attract them. And then once they come into the hive, the fact of the matter is it is a very complex process. And when you look at an eight, nine, ten-person buying committee, those individual buying committee members are at actual different parts in their buying journey. Uh, at any given stage of the organization's buying journey. So I think it, it calls upon us to look away from these more linear tools like uh, just applying a five email and lead nurturing sequence to a new person that comes into our universe, but rather, and Gartner's doing a bunch of work on this around looking at what are the, the different types of interactive tools that we ought to be creating that can really serve as buyer enablement tools uh, that kind of impact the various aspects of the journey, recognizing that those uh, that, that that different parts of that journey are being fulfilled at different times. And I, you know that that buyer enablement piece of it makes me like your bee analogy better than flies. The fly swarm is you know put enough stuff. We'll say honey, although we know that manure tends to attract flies more. 
put enough stuff on your website so uh, so that they keep coming back for more. They're essentially drawn to it, but it it leaves out that piece of it, which is those people that are involved in the decision making process that aren't going to be coming to the website and may not see any of your marketing. Essentially, what you want is the bees to go back with some pollen and go back and be better at selling your product internally, uh, be better at educating internally. Um, and is that more of an ABM sort of an approach? Yeah, look, I, I think we're actually getting somewhere with this hive analogy. Um, so uh, this could be, uh, this could have been the moment we were hoping for, you know, we've come up with a new model against uh, which we can uh, apply this uh, or, or kind of contrast this funnel thinking. Eureka. You're, you're quite right. Like, when we start thinking about those, you know, I like that notion of are we creating pollen because uh, it's for your own consumption as well as you can take it to help kind of communicate with others. That's what that what Gartner's talking about as they talk through the buyer enablement tools, things like calculators, simulators, recommendation engines, even interactive tools to help customers uh, benchmark themselves against their peers, the industry, or what have you that might be otherwise hard to find data. Interactive tools that help diagnose a particular business problem or challenge. And in doing so, help frame uh, the organization's unique uh, selling proposition uh, to the prospect uh, progressively over time as they interact with those various kind of buying tasks, if you will, or we would call them buying tasks or buying jobs, perhaps might be a better term. Well, and ultimately, it's the sales guy or girl that is going to say, hey, can I get on a call with your boss or can I get a call with the committee and and walk them through it? But we've always had this concept of what we call pass-ups. So it is marketing. It's typically a piece of content that is provided that is designed to be easy to pass up. Our websites are typically not that. If you're doing research, but someone else is going to make the decision, you want to be able to hand them something educational. And then the other component is how do we make uh, these internal champions better at talking about and selling or, you know, educating the, the committee so they make a good decision. And if we have a great product, they'll choose us. I'll, I'll be completely honest with the audience here. That's the nature of this podcast. I want to make you guys so good at understanding the impact of data-driven marketing that you're going to be really good at recommending conversion optimization. And hopefully, we will be the next words out of your lips after you feel like you've convinced the boss of that. But do you guys have any any sort of programs like that where you're specifically offering content that's designed to educate the rest of the organization? Well, absolutely, and um, you know, we're in, for instance, there's one client where they're, they're really their their service um, and the way they've oriented their entire organization is around addressing a bit of a hidden cost of being late in their industry. There are um, there can be delays, and and there's a, some obvious costs to them, and there are a lot of hidden costs to them. So we've actually just recently created a, an interactive tool that helps kind of quantify that cost of late. Uh, in that category, like basically, when somebody's uh, just initiating a new, uh, it's hard for me to t- say this without getting t- giving too much away. But it's it's basically when somebody makes a decision to go with this uh, with a with a new producer of this service, the very often that production doesn't come on stream in time. There, there's it's a process that's very laden with delays. 
this particular client has made all the kind of process changes that they needed to make to ensure that they're not one of those uh, people that are typically late on the job, right? But they, they, they needed an interactive way to explain uh, the real economic benefit of that or conversely the economic downturn of, or the, the financial downside to being late. That helps educate the, 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 the buyer that's going through that interactive process to really kind of think about their buying decision in a different way and give them a level of education. It's not so much a here, download this, and you can print it off and then pass it up. But I, I, I do view it as a, a pass up of knowledge. You're essentially making the person that's interacting with this tool a little bit more, giving them the strategic points that they need to, to talk about. Trying to make them a better buyer. Yeah. And I think, are you also like tapping into fear here in this particular insta- instance? I mean, it's the downside. That's a key part of that for sure. Yeah. Uh, of that particular tactic it is. I mean, it doesn't always have to be fear driven, but we know that fear is a powerful motivator. To talk a little bit about that, because I, I, we, we all hear about this in our communications. Should we be more positive? And um, the word I'm looking, aspirational is what I'm looking for. Uh, how do you decide when to focus on the fear side of the equation versus the aspirational? Is there any sort of formula you use? I, I don't know that I use a formula so much as I think you really just ought to hold yourself up to a pretty strong sniff test and say, how credible is this? Am I trying to suggest that there's fear where none exists? Uh, or ought to exist? Or am I, am I saying that it's disproportionate to what's, you know, what's kind of, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example in the world that mo- most people listening to the podcast probably would understand. If you're managing a website today, the fact is accessibility is a, is a big concern. Uh, we know that the Americans with Disabilities Act um, uh, enables uh, lawsuits, dominoes just in the news recently uh, around issues around ac- accessibility. So it's a clear and present legal danger for many, many businesses. There's a limit if you're somebody that sells, let's say, uh, accessible websites. For instance, if you buy a website from Cooler Partners, it will be uh, to uh, the latest YK standards. I mean, it's just in our blood how we do this, right? So one of the, but can we go out and sell websites using fear as the main driver? I don't know. Like, I think it might be over-egging the pudding a little bit to try to suggest that every manufacturer is at risk of a $20 million lawsuit tomorrow. So, therefore, I think in our instance, we would look to say, well, maybe we can't use that fear tactic. When you're looking at uh, the client example that I just referenced, however, when there is a true hidden cost being like that people don't generally know or appreciate, and they just have a hard time kind of understanding it until they see it, and we can build a tool that helps them see that, well, then that's useful, I think. As long as you're not uh, exaggerating, I think, or getting out over your skis too far. I think that's a great guide. That's a great guide. We, you know, when we're talking, it's really in the sales process. There's a certain kind of personality that I'm talking to that I will know to go and look at their competitor site and look for the telltale signs that the competitors are doing A/B testing or that they're using heat map reports and session recordings and things to to get better, faster, and uh, sometimes that will work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's always a, I find a fun um, a fun psychology. The notion of what are my competitors doing that I don't know yet. So let's uh, let's pull it back. Unless you have something to add to to this conversation, I want to kind of pull it back to this concept of many of us in B two B considered purchase worlds. We have ways of finding those people that are uh, in our our orbit that could take our product. It's a, a smaller number of people than are looking for uh, keywords like ours on, on search and so forth. 
So how does this process work? Do we just, is, is, is a primary thing to be at all the trade shows, collect as many of those names as possible, and then um, let sales take over? Well, man, I, I think if you're waiting to a trade show to find out who's in your market, you're a little late to the game. It really ought to be, you know, there's plenty of tools out there once you identify uh, your target client profile you can go out there and find the organizations that you're seeking to sell to. And then from there, find the personnel within them, do your contact research and really get a good picture of the buying committee within each one of your target accounts. And is that a, is that primarily a sales process? How does marketing support that? I have found that many organizations just don't have the function that I just described. So whether it's marketing or sales, it's like, man, it's nobody, nobody's doing that today. I think it's an opportunity for marketing to exercise leadership. I think they ought to be doing that as a way of knowing who they're focusing their message and their efforts on. Uh, but if sales is already doing it and marketing can just leverage that work, then, then so be it. It's the challenge of finding where they are, but then the step of also understanding who the other decision makers are around them. Well, your salespeople have a good sense often of the types of buying committees that they're um, encountering and the types of titles that they're seeing. Um, you're not going to be 100% accurate in terms of defining all eight members of a buying committee or even if there are eight, but you, you will have at least an enhanced level of accuracy on the contact side. You should have a pretty solid level of accuracy on the corporate side in terms of does this fit our target client profile, yes or no. Then for other you know, larger organizations that maybe have 10, 20, 30,000 target accounts, then you may look at implementing some technologies to um, – kind of help you, uh, you know, more uh, detection of buying intent or elevated intent. So you might want to engage those people differently, but that's another story probably. Oh yeah. That could go down a whole other rat hole there. You you said, use the word uh, customer profiles. Are those consummate with what we typically call personas or is that something different? Okay. So I always, it's, it's one layer up from personas. Buyer personas are your psychographic demographic bits of information and data points that let you know more about your buyer and personify that buyer in a way that helps you create better content for them or do what have you in a more useful way. And I think we all know buyer personas are fairly handy. Uh, going one step up, though, adding firmographic data to that, who do those buyer personas actually, who do they work for? You know, where do they exist? What are those organizations? What's the, what, what's the industry that they're in? What's the average size, revenue, employee count, things of that nature that can kind of can align to tools that we have available to actually go out and do corporate identification and contact research. I think firmographic, I think that's a new word for me. I like that. <laughs> ah, right. Well, I'm glad I brought something new. Well, if we're not measuring people going through some sort of a funnel built around a customer journey, what sorts of things are we measuring? Well, you are, but you're measuring which people and you're wanting to measure if you're getting the right ones into your universe. So how effective is marketing at actually getting our contacts from our 2000 target accounts into our universe in a meaningful way? That's really the answer that the question that we're trying to answer. And is there a, is there a metric for this? There's a percent on list, percent on in target, or is that just a marketing qualified lead? Well, everybody by definition that fits your target client profile and that you've kind of wrapped your arms around in your initial target identification process, those people by definition would be an MQL. That's why we kind of, I think, need to get the notion of marketing qualified lead out of our heads in some way, right? And, and just say our marketing's job is to get these targeted organizations and people into our universe. And then it's also to provide a number of tools that help 
enable that buying journey that can be content driven in, in the purest sense or or more maybe inter we find uh, generally speaking interactive content tools uh, over outperform kind of passive content tools but um, nevertheless think about what are you creating to help enable that that buying journey and how are you integrating your uh, sales team members and the experts that oftentimes hide behind their sales team. How are you bringing them earlier into that buying journey process, exposing your prospects to them in a way that can help create some connectivity and some relationship build before there's actually a point where somebody's saying, uh, press hard three copies. I want to buy something today. What kinds of content are you using? So to, are your clients using? Are you recommending to your clients to get these SMEs uh, in the content or to get these SMEs knowledge out to begin to educate your, uh, your clients' prospects? We're currently working with somebody right now to actually uh, look at launching a podcast that uh, focused on their engineers. Uh, So two key uh, team members uh, from their engineering team and how do we bring that expertise to bear and actually bring it up as a marketing asset? I think that's an interesting example of doing that. It's not necessarily SMEs, but uh, well, it is a subject matter expert, but in I guess a more specific context. Well, so let's let's talk a little bit more about that. So podcasting in a B2B sale, it sounds like you're bullish on that. Or is that just the nature of this particular marketplace that, that you're using this? I mean, whether we're talking about, I mean, again, different tactics, I think will work for different people. There's lots of different ways that we can create to um, co-create uh, content with customers using our subject matter experts. I mean, you could do, maybe you could host a, uh, panels, for instance, where you're uh, doing the kind of peer exchange panels where they're facilitated by your subject matter experts and you're bringing prospects together to talk about uh, real problems that they share, uh, but doing it in a way that, it, that drives peer learning and essentially just positions your subject matter expert as the narrator of the conversation. Uh, so, you know, in some instances that would work great. Uh, in others, it doesn't fit because the number of people we need to connect with are too big or what have you, you know? So I think tool selection will vary, but the method stays the same in that how do we bring these, uh, experts out from under, uh, um, under the, the curtain, uh, give them, uh, some connectivity with our prospects in a way that's meaningful to both of their lives. And I think that uh, if we can find, if you can crack that nut, then you're a ways down the road. Yeah, and everybody has their their challenges. So if I was to kind of summarize what I'm hearing, there's two ways to go about this lead generation nut, and they're not exclusive, but one is behavioral-based, where you're doing lead scoring and qualification based on people's behaviors. And in the digital realm, those are the most easy to measure. So it's number of how many Papers are they downloading? How frequently are they visiting? Um, are they subscribing to any of your ongoing content? And you're you know, scoring them or moving them through the funnel based on that behavior. Then there's research-based where you go out and you take the time or hire somebody who can take the time to give you a list of the businesses and ideally the, the people within those businesses or the titles that uh, this is your target list. And now I'm going to measure the effectiveness of my any marketing, digital marketing, whatever, against its ability to fill out this list. Is that a fair assumption? Is that a fair dichotomy? That's an interesting way to look at it. And I would say that the the behavior-based approaches, which would be maybe a little bit more traditional funnel think, if you will, are probably lend themselves more to like B2C environments. 
where that the, the top of funnel is truly a bit more unlimited. Um, but when you're talking about high uh, cost of purchase, complex B2B sale, uh, it probably uh, choosing the other uh, method that you described would be more appropriate and beginning to think of it through that hive lens. Anything else around uh, this process that our listeners, um, uh, like if they say, okay, I agree with this, what should they do? What should be the, the next few states when they finish the commute that they're on right now and get back to the office? Uh, look, well, if you, uh, if you agree with this, then you need to start first things first with uh, identify those target accounts and then begin to frame your um, marketing and sales efforts uh, uh, against them. So uh, from there, um, begin to uh, rethink uh, your nurturing efforts uh, through the lens of buyer enablement, understanding that it's not going to be a linear process and you're going to help multiple people answer multiple questions at multiple times. And then uh, the next thing I would say, and just to end it there, would be to say uh, to take the, the, the expertise out from, from behind the curtain and find ways to move those uh, salespeople uh, into to an opportunity where they're uh, gaining exposure to prospects uh, sooner um, and developing relationships with them earlier. And do you have any favorite resources for doing the research to find these clients? Is it association sites? Where do you go to begin to build this list of target audience? Yeah, look, there's lots of uh, even just contact tools like Zoom Info or whatever can, um, uh, you know, you can begin to work your way through this um, using a lot of different tools. Data.com, I guess data.com, I think shut down now, but whatever the upcoming replacement of that might be. So, yeah, uh, I think lots of those uh, tools out there can uh, can assist you in uh, wrapping your arms around those target client organizations. First things first, start with your firmographic information and ask yourself those hard questions that you know the tools use to categorize prospects. So how many employees in the organizations that we typically serve, typical uh, revenue size and things of that sort, sectors so that you can get really specific in your use of the tools. Will marketers get pushback when they come in and say, hey, we need to refocus here and you know, we, we know that there are 5,000 entities that we're going after in, our, in the United States? Um, will they get pushback from CMOs that are like, well, that's the job. We're supposed to go find them, right? I think one interesting thing is, so it may get pushed back. Some of it may be self-created though, right? Like they maybe they've, as a marketer, they've been talking about vanity metrics for a while now, and now they're kind of concerned that they might be speaking out of two sides of their mouth or something. But I, I would say uh, for most leaders in B2B organizations uh, outside of the marketing uh, function, they already have a sneaking suspicion that their world isn't unlimited. And they already think that it probably ought to be focused in a narrower way. Um, and they probably are already suspicious of some of the uh, bigger um, vanity metrics that can just spill out of a Google Analytics tool without any kind of context or meaning. So I think in some ways marketers will find themselves speaking a language in a B2B context that their organization increasingly understands better than the language they've been talking before. When you get back to the office, maybe you should develop a firmographic profile. What kinds of companies would actually buy your product? What are the titles of the people who research and influence solutions like yours? Who else in the company are weighing in on the decision? Then take a few of your internal experts to lunch. Some of them would love to help you create some content that makes your prospects better buyers of your product or service. Now, go science something. 